From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back, everyone. Today's Capital Idea episode is about applying the principles of capitalism to foreign policy. That's right, a capitalist foreign policy. And I'm really happy to welcome my friend Alain Journo to the podcast. Most people don't really associate you know, capitalism with a foreign policy, but if they do, it's usually along the lines of some negative, confused caricature, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think there are a lot of myths about what capitalism's approach to foreign policy and international relations looks like. I'm happy to bust some of those myths if we can today. Yeah, that's, that's the idea here. Elon Journo is a prominent objectivist intellectual specializing in American foreign policy. He's a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and is ARI's director of policy research. You have lots of experience with podcasts, radio shows, speaking appearances, and I really appreciate your being an integral part of this Defenders of Capitalism project, uh, Elon, and frequent speaker at our leadership programs, both in Connecticut and, and Colorado. So I appreciate you being here. Happy to do it. So there's so many things I want to ask you about, but I want to first, you know, give you a chance to share with our audience a little bit more background about yourself. You're kind of, you're kind of a unique guy and <laughs> I'm kind of interested in, in having you talk about, you know, why you got interested in foreign policy, why that animates you, what drove you to become so interested in that, that area? Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you, I was, uh, my, my vision for my career was to be a writer on big ideas. I was really animated by bringing a philosophic perspective to cultural, political issues. And I, I had, and I still have a lot of interest, a lot of directions I, I'd love to explore. Practically infinite, actually. <laughs> One of the challenges is being focused, as many people experience. The pivotal event for me that made me interested in foreign policy came in 2001. Uh, so I, my background is in philosophy. I did an undergraduate, and then later on I did a uh, graduate degree in international relations. But I wasn't keen on foreign policy from the outset. But what changed everything for me was 9-11. I think a lot of it was a, obviously a major event that we all lived through at the time. And I just became fascinated both with who it was that attacked us, why, and then what does it look like to have a reasonable approach and response to it? Because people who were not there at the time or old enough to, uh, to recall the, the debates, foreign policy was the number one issue, number two issue, number three issue for at least a solid decade. Yep. And it, you know, one of the things we did at the Institute, and I was privileged to be part of this, is we saw that as an opportunity to try to voice a better perspective on foreign policy, because we realized we got here because we had bad foreign policies. The question is, where do we go from here? What, and there, was a, there was an opening. So that's, that's what got me interested in the Middle East and foreign policy generally and in America's approach to it. And as you mentioned when you introduced me, my intellectual framework, the one that I, I bring to whatever I work on is Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectionism, my, my best understanding of it, and what I realized as I got interested in foreign policy and the Middle East and all the issues that were uh, bubbling up at the time is that a, an objectivist or more broadly a capitalist approach is radically different 
from what we've encountered and what people think it is. And I got me interested in just being part of the, the, the you know, the intellectual movement on this issue and just being able to bring it to people's attention and educate them about it. So that's a bit about my background. Uh, just by, very quick biographically for people listening, um, you probably are wondering, what is this accent all about? <laughs> and I, can't, I don't have an answer. I can just explain and slightly apologize. I, I grew up in lots of different places. <laughs> Why would you apologize? <laughs> like it's, a, it's a little strange. Uh, I, I don't sometimes know how I'm going to pronounce the word until it actually comes out. And it's a little bit, so, <laughs> so I grew up, uh, I have multiple, uh, I've been an immigrant multiple times. So I actually was born in Israel. I left when I was six. I grew up mostly and I was educated in the United Kingdom and different parts of the United Kingdom. And uh, that accounts for some of my accent. And then in my early 20s, I moved to the United States. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I am uh, by choice and by fervent desire to become an American citizen uh, in the last few years. So that, that's, that's a little always, bit about who I am. That's always one of the amazing things to me. I mean, some of my favorite people in the whole world, some of the people I admire and, and respect the most are are Americans by choice. And I introduced, I introduced you, you, you sometimes that way. Um, it, it's, but I can hear people in the back of their minds going, okay, well, he, he was born in Israel and then he did this. And he, wait, is he, um, what kind of credibility he, how, you know, some of the people who are expect, especially some of the people we might want to be addressing, you know, with regard to foreign policy and nationalism and that kind of stuff, they might be going, well, how, how come he gets to talk about American foreign policy? He's, he's from somewhere else. You know, he, he doesn't have any brighter credibility. How do you respond to that kind of thing? I would say that one should judge credibility on the evidence. I don't care where you come from. I don't care where you're born. Uh, are you making a, 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 an argument based in fact and evidence? And is it, does it add up? Does it cohere logically? And I, I think that there's a broader current in our culture that want, looks to discredit people based on non-essential issues. Like, I, you, how can you speak about uh, racial issues, unless you're black, or if you are black, you have to have a certain view, or if you're white, you're discredited, or if you're a man, you can't talk about the situation that, you know, women's place in the workplace. Well, there's so many things that you can only learn if you grow up in a particular culture, or if you have a certain identity, but I don't think those are determinative. So the fact that I didn't grow up in the United States doesn't, I don't think that discredits me or anyone else from being able to understand what is the history of America? So to me, there's, it's just the essential is, can we be objective? And I think, yes, if we put in the effort, anyone can form an objective view on any issue uh, with the proviso that, yeah, there are certain things. I will never know what it's like to grow up black, but that doesn't mean I can't come to understand the issues in, in some objective way. Yeah, I like the way you frame that. Um, you, you, know, you, you talked about, <clears throat> you briefly said, well, uh, a cap, you know, I introduce it as a capitalist foreign policy. And, and I think most people are like, well, that doesn't, those two words don't seem to go together. And you, you briefly said, you know, an objective, but you didn't, you weren't even saying an objectivist foreign policy. You were saying, you know, maybe a rational foreign policy. I mean, you know, it, fact and evidence-based foreign policy. And, and that's, that's the key thing is, you know, whether you're talking about race or economics or, you know, art or whatever it might be, or foreign policy, it's like, well, is there, is there some rationality behind it? And that's, I think that's the thing you're focused on as far as an overall framework. Yeah, definitely. And I would say that, so objectivism is a philosophy and a philosophy is, it's a term that puts people off. It's kind of intimidating. One thing to know is it's, 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 a, it's any rational philosophy is a, is a set of ideas that integrate systematically to give us guidance on how to live 
as individuals and how to organize society. So they're very abstract principles. And in my work, what I try to do is approach foreign policy with that as a framework. So I don't think of the work that I do as this is an objectivist foreign policy, just as there isn't really an objectivist theory of law. There's just the principles of government, and then you can apply them, and you can apply objectivist principles to a given field, but then it's application. Uh, And the other thing I would say about the framing is when we think about capitalism, and I'm sure this is a big focus of the work you do, I, I, I know from my experience with you, it's important to understand what that is and that it's, it's not culture bound. That, so my view is that anyone everywhere should be a capitalist, whether you're growing up in Calcutta or Taiwan or, or in Beijing, it's, it's a set of ideas and moral principles that are, I think, universally true. They should be embraced by everyone in every culture. And the fact that it arose in uh, predominantly Western European countries and in North America does not mean that it's, it should be seen as restricted to those societies, either in its uh, validity or in its appeal. So, so when I think of this, I would say the broad framework of how to approach foreign policy from a capitalist perspective, it's what every country should be doing, not only America. And what everyone everywhere should see as, well, this is a better way to in- engage with the rest of the world. I think well, but that, that, that begs the question, right? That says, uh, you know, you, you have to have some, some premises behind that. You know, if you say it's not culture specific and it's not Western, and, but going back to your, you, you know, your primary, at least initially, your primary focus in all your writing and research and, and commentary on the Middle East, you know, uh, how does someone from the Middle East who comes from that culture say, well, okay, yeah, I should accept capitalism when they reject a lot of the prior premises that would underlie capitalism. Yeah, I think that's an important observation. And that, so maybe it's worth putting out some of the positive uh, claims or, or some of the ideas that amount to what a capitalist approach would be. And then we can go back to, to answer that question. Uh, so I, when I think of a capitalist foreign policy, it's, it's not at all what we have today. What we have today is really a hash. It's, I'm speaking for the United States now. It's incoherent. I think it's easy to show that it's the changes that occur between administrations and even within an administration over time, they are highly concrete bound and non-principled approaches. Uh, You know, there isn't a stable conception of what's in America's interest. And the fact that it changes so much is, is not just about the means, it's about the basic function of what a government should be doing with respect to other countries. So to me, it's, it's important to distinguish what we have today. And I think of what we have today as the big problem in foreign policy. The problem is not we have a lot of threats that we don't know what to do with. Is we don't know what we are doing. And then, yeah, in addition, there are problems with various countries that are threatening potentially. Um, but we're in a really good position that we're very powerful militarily and economically. And it's very hard to come and harm us. Like we have two oceans on either side and we have borders with mostly friendly countries. So we're unique in that respect. So to me, the, the essential issue is that when we think of foreign policy, we need to go back a step to ask, well, where do we get the principles for all this? What are they? And the short answer is they're not essentially different from the principles of a proper government domestically. Uh, so some of this might be familiar to your listeners if they're, uh, you know, I'm sure you talked about some of this in other concepts, but just to recap, 
a proper government on the original American system has very limited functions. It's there to protect the individual rights and the freedom of each of us to think and act and produce and trade and build and, and have the life that we think is the best for us within the constraints of respecting the rights and freedom of everyone else. It's a reciprocal. That's what you owe other people. That they respect your rights and you respect theirs. And that's a radically uh, new political thought in the history of the world. Uh, this was the innovation of that came out of the Enlightenment and the Founding Fathers really solidified that. Now, there were problems in the original American conception of government, not fully realizing this principle for sure. Uh, and just as a footnote, we, it wasn't fully realized from the beginning and there had to be a civil war to, to bring that, to, to encompass, uh, to eliminate slavery, which is a big problem. And then later on to bring women into the, the franchise. But those things, I think, are sort of the universality of humankind's rights. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, so, but having acknowledged that, I think the essential issue is with this conception of government's purpose is to protect our freedom. Then you get the police force, the, the rule of law judiciary you need. And as part of that, you need a military with respect to foreign threats, which it's essentially what the police are there to do domestically. The military is there to do internationally, which is if people want to harm us, if they want to inflict damage on Americans' lives and freedom, the military and the whole foreign policy apparatus is, exists in a proper system to identify what those threats are and to prevent them. That's it. And then there are obviously subsidiary issues such as how do you know who's a threat, who's an enemy? How do you evaluate that? And that takes real work and thought. And that's partly why it's a, con, it's a, it's a necessary function of a proper government. It's a necessary good. Let me, let me then broaden this a bit now. People might be thinking, oh, so what's the trade policy? And how do you decide on tariffs? And, how do you, and my answer is, stop. <laughs> Those are not part of what a proper foreign policy is. Foreign policy under capitalism is the principle of free trade. Basically, you find people who are willing to trade with you, value for value, and radically different from today, we don't, have, we don't accept tariffs. We don't accept restrictions on trade. We don't accept the whole idea, like NAFTA. When I was growing up, I remember hearing NAFTA, well, this is a big, great thing. They're going to open up free trade. And I realized you, this is a joke. You don't write a phone book long, like a thick, <laughs> uh, people remember what phone books look like, like a multi-volume book to define what free trade looks like. Like it's exactly the opposite. Like there's so many restrictions. So that's an important feature that's distinctive to capitalism. And there's a whole rich tradition of free trade on the economic side of sort of the thought about capitalism, political economy that have validated all sorts of things that people now think of and are tripped up. The sorts of fallacies about why um, that lead them to think that tariffs are good and so on. So, but let's bracket that for the time being. So the, the essentials are government's purpose in foreign policy is to keep us safe from foreign threats, to understand what those threats are, and also to understand who our allies are, because that's important. And then economically is to let us trade, let us find the people we can do business with, let us go and, and open factories where we think it's advantageous. Now, those are the, the key things. And as I was trying to stress, that's not at all what we have today. I mean, there's layers upon layers of controls, even under what we call favored nation status for trade and all, all these free trade agreements we come up with. They're from a truly principled perspective. If you take capitalism seriously, they don't belong, right? So they're really not part of what it pictures. So that's a bit of a picture of what capitalism as a foreign approach, foreign policy looks like. And to go to your question about, let's put it in terms of a challenge, like a devil's advocate challenge. I'm saying that these principles are universal. They should have 
you should be appealing to everyone everywhere. And you, you bring up a good example, which what about people in the Middle East where they, there isn't this kind of appeal? And I think it's exactly true. All of what I've been describing, the political economic functions, they presuppose moral principles. Like the whole idea of individual rights is a moral idea that has political manifestations. And what are those moral philosophic foundations? They are the idea that each individual has value, that we are, our own lives matter to us, that politically we start from the idea of the individuals are, are individually sovereign. Each of us is a sovereign over our own life. We don't bow to the king. You know, we, don't, we laugh at that today. Like, who would bow to the king? But that was the default position for tens of thousands of years. There was the tribal leader, the king, the tsar. You know, there's so many names for these people, but they're essentially people who hold power over you and exploit you. I mean, that's the history of humanity. Until you get this radical shift in the Enlightenment where it's really a combination of thinking on this issue. But we, the view is, no, that's not what government's about. Government's not about us bowing. Government is an agency. It's a service that we need to keep us safe. We need to put the use of force under monopoly power by one agency and put it under objective law so that we don't get vigilantes, we don't get warlords, we don't get mafia, we don't get gangs. Uh, and that, that's a moral perspective. That means your life matters. It's a, it's a value. And that's the starting point. And it means that you as an individual matter, not you, Mike, because you have uh, Anglo-Saxon heritage or Irish heritage or Greek or German or whatever. That's not what the source of value is. It's you as an individual and the person you've created. Now, when you go to societies, the Middle East is particularly a good example of this, where there isn't that philosophic intellectual tradition of valuing the individual. There's the opposite. There's various kinds of collectivism, either tribal, religious, or both. And in the Middle East, you get a combination of both tribalism along ethnic or racial lines combined with re religious tribalism. So there's a lot of sectarianism. People know probably the, you know, the big division in Islam is Sunni versus Shiite. And, and that really is, it functions like kind of a, a tribal animosity between those two sects. And it's true in Christianity, but it's less pronounced because Christianity has been uh, tempered many, over many... Uh, Secularized. Uh, yeah, secularized. But also, you know, we, we don't have a crusade in Christianity the way we used to literally, right? Um, and that's a big, big change. So in those societies, that is a handicap in the sense that if you don't start from the, the premise that individuals matter, if you start from the premise of the group, you won't see the value in a society that's designed to leave the individual free. And that is one of the, this is going to sidetrack us, but just to, to note this, and we can come back to it if you're interested, the big problem with America's response to 9-11 was that the Bush administration, George W. Bush, their reaction was, well, let's put the trappings of a free society in the Middle East. Let's bring elections. Let's bring representative government without recognizing that you need this philosophic intellectual foundation of individualism, of the idea that we each are intellectually competent to run our own lives. We have a mind. And ignoring the fact that you you can't bring a society that is deeply rooted in collectivism and tribalism. You can't turn it around with an election. That it takes a lot of cultural work, good ideas to over to replace the bad ideas, and that that's so really that, true. Yeah. 
that whole idea of work, you've mentioned that a couple of times. In fact, you know, so far, our, I, I kind of encapsulate our conversation as being, you're saying, well, we don't have a principled foreign policy. We don't have a capitalist foreign policy. We don't have anything like that. We have a, you said a hash, your, your technical term for, and, and it takes work. You know, it, 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 this kind of thing is an achievement. And it seems like even people in the West or people in America in, in the State Department don't realize that, that achievement and that work that has been done. They, they kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you can't have trappings. You can't just say, well, okay, we're going to put in vote. But did, in that case, was there anything learned in the last 20 years about that, even that example, that horrific example of what happened on 9-11 and then the really bumbling, idiotic, un- unprincipled, concrete-bound <laughs> type of approach we've taken? Has there been anything that's learned since then? Not on this. I mean, they, they certainly learned about some of the tactical, logistical strategy mistakes. I think there's a lot that, that has come out. In the same they, sense, they're saying, OK, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have done that in the Middle East. And then they're going to do the same thing. Yeah, else. no, no, I don't think that the fundamental lessons have not been learned. The kind of things that have been learned, I would say, are, you know, we wasted a lot of money in Afghanistan with this rebuilding effort. We can't do it this way. We, if we're going to rebuild, we have to do it. And that to me is a it's important, but it's not even close to the, the, the crucial lesson. And the crucial lesson is that we it, if you want to put it really starkly, the Middle East that we went to democratize on this Bush crusade is roughly where Europe was about a thousand years ago in terms of the level of religiosity, tribalism, the, the non, so the absence of any kind of intellectual foundation for a free society. And it took Europe a thousand years and a lot of really smart people to move towards the enlightenment sort of direction. And even then it wasn't complete. So the idea that you could do this in, in the Middle East and, and somehow time war in what, one election? I mean, it, it, when you put it that way, it's really fantasy land. And to me, this is an, a powerful illustration of the power uh, of, of the importance of philosophic moral ideas. So if you don't appreciate that they're the foundation for a free society, you'll go along and you think that all you need are the, the garments, not the substance, right? It's the outer appearance. So to me, the, one of the tragedies is that the, the re- reaction to 9-11 and the, the democracy crusade gave the idea of freedom a bad name. And it, it made people think that we shouldn't be advocates for this ideal, because if this is what it looks like, let's not do it. And I agree, if this is what it looks like, no, this is a mistake. And, but it's not what it looks like. And it, it's, if you wanted to design a worse, a scenario where the, the chances of its success were worse, you couldn't. Like This is almost calculated to, to lead to failure. Uh, and so in that sense, it's, it's understandable that it's been discredited. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think the right lessons were learned at all. So, you know, I, we could talk a lot about the Middle East and, um, you know, the, the foreign policy, the, the unprincipled approach and what's happened. Um, but there's, a, in a sense, a more urgent uh, idea or a more urgent issue with re- regard to this Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of, you know, what we have or haven't learned, um, what, what a proper policy, what, what a proper foreign policy would be applied to that situation right now? Yeah. So let's just develop the thought one step further from where I left it with what is a capitalist approach and then apply it to Ukraine and Russia. I've said, I've argued that 
what's essential to a capitalist approach to foreign policy is an approach that's designed to protect the rights of Americans. And the question then is, well, you know, the big question is, when do you use military force? When do you go to war? And that's the momentous question. And I think the answer has to be only in self-defense. So only when the lives and freedom of Americans are actually, objectively, provably at risk. And that can mean that, you know, sometimes it means you react after an attack, like Pearl Harbor or 9-11, but sometimes it can be preemptive. And I think it's, there are cases, and this is very controversial after the Iraq War, right? but there are contexts where it's, it's necessary to act preemptively. Now, it, there's a very high bar and it has to be really well documented and objective, but it can't be ruled out. And this is also in contrast to the views out there that basically say, well, no, we, we must never do anything until, you know, we've, you know, we've hit, we've, we've been punched with the, the, the left hook after the right hook. And, you know, so I don't think a, a policy of passivity is at all appropriate. So that's to be a, a, when you retaliate, when, that, and this is the only basis you have for this. You have to be re- exclusively designing your actions so they uh, eliminate the threat as quickly as possible and put as few Americans' lives at risk as possible. So you have to respect the rights of the soldiers you're sending into battle. You can't just treat them as well. They're soldiers. They sign up for this. So that's the essential. You, you use military force in self-defense, only in self-defense. So then let's talk about situations like Ukraine and Russia. And so what is our interest here? Do we have an interest here? And I think the answer is our interest is really constrained. So is it better that Ukraine be free of Russian oppression and domination? Absolutely, yes. Should we be supporting Ukraine's leader with selling them military aid? Yes. Should we give them moral support? Even double yes, you know, 10,000 times more than we've even tried to do now. And are there other things you can do short of using military force to support people who really want to avoid living under tyranny, which is how I think of the Ukrainians? None of this is to say Ukraine is an oasis of of freedom or anything like that, but I think they're trying to move towards a better society, and that's to be applauded. Well, you know, and that's the interesting question. It's it's, uh, people talk about, okay, the clean principled idea, and then how do you apply it to these various uh, gradations of nations. I, I actually, uh, you may have heard me say this before, but I, I, I said, I've said before that, you know, uh, Russia itself isn't even legitimate a, a, as a nation. Mm-hmm. And um, can you contrast that to Ukraine? Sure. Why, why would, why would someone say that? And, and, and is, is that, is that, is that correct to say, you know, really Russia itself has no legitimacy? Yeah. No, I think you're raising an important point. So d- this takes us to another perspective on the, the proper role of government and then the application of it in foreign policy. So if a proper government is one that is really working to defend individual rights, that is the sole basis for its existence. Like if it doesn't do that, then it's, it's defaulting on its job. Place and you mean that, that more universally, not just the U.S. Constitution? Yeah. Yeah. You mean that like a yeah. government? A <laughs> government, yeah. No government, if and it has to be really trying. Now, a lot of a lot of countries, a lot of governments are trying, but not doing that well. But they're basically trying. Like the United Kingdom, there are a lot of problems. I grew up there, a lot of problems. But their basic orientation is, yeah, we we think you should be free, but we we have. And the U.S. is like this. That's radically different from a country or regime 
where it's not that they're trying and failing, it's that they're at war with the principle of freedom. And that's, that's true of Russia or any dictatorship, any authoritarian, uh, where it's theocratic like Iran or Saudi Arabia or more just fascist like Russia. And to your point about, is it a legitimate regime? Now, this is another important contrast with conventional views in foreign policy, which is conventional view. And when I say conventional, I mean, this is encoded in the DNA of the United Nations. So you can't get more conventional than this. The idea is that if there's a country that exists, it's sovereign and we, everyone has to respect its rights. And that is simply false. That, that ignores this issue of what is the purpose of government. So you can't tell me that it's legitimate for Putin to throw his political enemies in prison and torture them into, and round up people by the tens of thousands and throw them in the equivalent of gulags, or for China to be doing the same thing by the tens of thousands, or for Iran to be dominating its people, imposing religious law. That's just irrational. That's just a complete evasion of the importance of freedom. So the principle is, if a government is at war with its people, it has no claim to sovereignty over any territory, let alone what it can defend. And so when you look at a regime like Russia, it has no moral basis. So nothing that Putin claims deserves any hearing because he's essentially a gangster right? or worse than a gangster with a military and the power to dominate other countries. That doesn't make it right. In fact, it's so it doesn't deserve any hearing at all, no. let alone a voice on the UN Security Council. Yeah, no, certainly not that. So to me, this is a top contrast. The conventional view is amoral. The conventional view is, well, you have a country, well, then you're sovereign. And how dare you challenge the sovereignty of Putin? Yeah, we don't like what he does. That to me is a draining out of all the important substance of what foreign policy is about, which is thinking in terms of right and wrong and really caring about that and making sharp distinctions between there, there's a night and day difference between a dictatorship and a free society or even a poverty well, free society. And this, this is a, a glaring example. Uh, sometimes people get confused about uh, objectivism, objectivists or Ayn Rand and, you know, quote, libertarians. And isn't that sort of one of the major differences in terms of being able, I mean, uh, that whole idea of neutrality, you know, just as a universal concept, you know, we just need to be neutral. I can't judge, you know, there's no judgment involved. And Ayn Rand was much different than that. You know, she wanted to be able to say, these are the good guys, you know, these, these are the good people and here are, the, here are the bad guys. And we're going to be clear about that and what we should do in terms of our behavior toward each group. And then there are people out there who are like, no, I can't make those judgments. I'm neutral. You know, is, is that sort of what drives, drives that, that viewpoint? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true the characterization is that moral judgment in her theory or her philosophy is, is central. It's not, oh, we happen to like it. It's a, it's a cool thing. It's, it's essential because if you think about at the level of the individual, if you don't make these judgments, you're putting yourself potentially in the, in the hands of people who are going to do you harm. And it's going to, but on the positive, it's going to prevent you from figuring out who are the good people you want to deal with? Because that takes moral judgment too. I mean, we have this view that to judge just means judge negatively. But I'm on this call with you because I have such admiration for the work that you do. That's a moral judgment. I wouldn't spend my time here if I didn't think this was worthwhile. But that's the kind of thing that if you understand that morality, in her view, is a key to success in life, 
then you understand that it's a key to success in everything, including foreign policy. Like we, we want to treasure our allies. We want them because they're good for us. And we want to navigate away from the people who are either not allies or unfriendly or potentially hostile or even actually hostile. And to be able to make those discriminations is not just a nice to have, it's that is the substance of what it means to think and live and, and be on a path to success. And success in this context just means not being threatened or having a cloud over us all the time with, oh, when is the next bomb going to go off in Manhattan? Are we going to worry about another hijacking? Now, so there's clearly the, the goal of eliminating the negative, but it's important to get that moral judgment on Ayn Rand's approach is it's an essential of living a life because you need to know the good from the bad, the better people from the worst people, and, and to find the values and cultivate them. So I'd love to trade more with, with, uh, with you. And I'd love to trade more with the companies that, like my desk has so many things I love on this desk, right? I want more of this stuff. How do you do it? Well, you have to find the good people who design great products, who put in the thought. Uh, so it can't be overstated and it can't be overstated. It can't be stressed enough that all this whole approach has to be suffused with a commitment to what's true and what's good. And we, we know what's true. We know what Putin's really like. And we know what that means. His behavior, which is a factual matter, tells us that our evaluation should be very, very uh, uh, negative, right? We should really denounce what he's doing. That's, in her view, not just uh, important, but it's inescapable if you're trying to succeed in life and in policy generally. So why, why are we getting uh, this confusion? I mean, it, 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 you're stressing the work that it takes. And I, you know, I, I think I get that. I think I, you know, I think I need to digest the, those kinds of concepts as it applies to foreign policy. And, and, but lots of people aren't, aren't doing it, it seems like. And especially in, when you have the leader of the free world being so unprincipled. You know, we have the, the U.S. being this kind of shining example but really pretty confused about what it means to have a, a rational and just foreign policy. So how do all of these other countries out there, you know, who, how do we judge each one of them? And then, and then you have people in, in the U S who are like, well, is Putin really that bad? Maybe he's kind of, I mean, in fact, I saw an article this morning that said that, you know, the GOP's Putin wing and, and why do we, how do we get that kind of uh, confusion on the part of people who are supposedly defenders of freedom? That's a, uh... We should have another call about that. <laughs> That's a big topic. Let me take out a couple of threads and, and maybe I can help uh, offer an answer. I think at least two things are important to identify. One is there is some confusion, but I don't think it's primarily, we can't explain what's going on primarily by confusion. Because confusion means you're trying to figure it out, but you're going wrong somehow. And I think that when we talk about not the people who are voters or activists, but people who are the intellectuals in foreign policy, people who are policy makers, people who are elected officials, there just is uh, moral cowardice and compounded by bad philosophic ideas that lead them to uh, wrong judgments and wrong actions and haphazard policy, in effect. So to me, this is something I've been writing about, just to mention one of the books where people can explore this explanation further. It's uh, failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism, what, what went wrong after 9-11. It's a collection of essays my colleague and I put together. It's an attempt to answer some of what you're raising, which is 
how do we go so wrong? Like what's, what is it that people don't get that makes them go down these irrational paths, irrational policies? So to me, it's, it's essentially a philosophic default. Like people are not thinking rationally and they don't have good tools. And what happens is the void that where they should have good thinking and good tools and good evidence is just filled by bad ideas, ideas that tell you, turn the other cheek. Uh, the idea that we're our brother's keeper in the Middle East, therefore we have to go and lift up, lift the poor out of poverty. Uh, people might find those ideas congenial in their own lives. I don't think those are the right moral ideas. And what happens when you apply them is you get disasters. Uh, so the, there's a really important question here about what is uh, what people should be guided by. So to me, a lot of what we see that's going wrong is the coward, moral cowardice that's fed by some of these conventional moral ideas. And then on top of that, I think among some intellectuals, there is some dishonesty. It's hard to believe. But, but it, so my answer is, it's not enough for us to have a call with them. And maybe all of us, all the listeners come along and say, these are the principles you need. Because part of the challenge is there isn't really openness to the idea that they need principles to begin with, and let alone which principles. So to me, it, it's a deep, deep sort of intellectual, philosophical challenge. Um, it, it's, it's counterpart to why, aren't, why don't we have better domestic policy? Why isn't our domestic administration and, and approach more along the lines of capitalism? And I think it's, it's, at root, it's the same kind of issue, is that we have bad moral ideas that lead to bad policy. We're not willing to be honest about the mistakes we make. And it's just, it kind of compounds. We need more controls because the last one screwed up and now we have to patch it. And I don't need to tell you that, but you know, yeah. just think about the financial industry, right? It's just, it's a mess. It's like just, it's like geological layers of, okay, we did this in 2020. And this is because in 2010, we had 2008, we had the crash. And before that we had the thing in the 1990s and it's just layer upon layer. So it's that same bad medicine, you know, taking, taking the medicine that you got you there in the first place. Yeah. But you, know, you said something I, I wanted to remind me about a couple of things. I wanted to make sure people realize that, I mean, I've learned a ton from you listening to your, I mean, you're, you're getting more and more active on the Ayn Rand Institute. I think, I don't know, you seems like you're the one who drives it, the Ayn Rand Institute podcast and, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of the online material. Um, tell people where they can go to, to listen to that. So Ayn Rand.org, A-Y-N, rand.org. We have a, an online journal called New Ideal, which you can get newideal.einrand.org online. It would obviously easier to Google these things, but uh, yeah, people should definitely be looking up. And, 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 you know, I should remind our listeners to, to take a look at your books. Most, much of your foreign policy writing has been about the war on Islamic uh, fascism and, and, you know, terrorism and so forth, you know, the, but there's three titles I want to at least name, uh, you know, what Justice Demands, which, I, which is one of my favorite, um, you know, the America and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that's a subtitle. And, and also, as you mentioned, uh, failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism, what went wrong after 9-11. And then, of course, winning the unwinnable war, which to me was a really striking title, because so many people out there think there's this long slog, you know, you just can't, we're just going to have terrorism forever, and you just have to keep battling, but you're never going to win it. And um, you know, your idea and some of the people you were editing, uh, you know, have, have, no, this is a, this is clearly a winnable war. And, and I think those, it's important for our listeners to realize there's a lot of great writing that you've done. I do want to bring it back to, you know, today, Ukraine, and maybe even, even the, you know, obviously Russia and, and China. But I heard you say something on, I think on your podcast, not that long ago, um, that there's two, two different kinds of nationalism. And this brings me back to this whole idea of the confusion that a lot of people have. Maybe they're confused. 
maybe they're unwilling or don't have the courage to actually look at the moral principles. But you, you mentioned these two ideas of nationalism, kind of one that one is maybe positive. And you said something that really struck me. And I want you to talk more about this, Alon, that, that, that a nation or, or its government needs to actually earn the patriotism of their citizens. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So this is another perspective on the point that simply the, the existence of a, of a government doesn't make it sovereign or legitimate. So Putin is not a legitimate regime. The U.S. is. And I think being able to tell those apart is crucial. In the same way, when we think about uh, our own country, just because you were born in the U.S., you don't owe it anything. You don't owe it loyalty. What you need to do is to say, does this country that I'm here living in deserve loyalty? Does it deserve my support? And it should only if it's serving the principle of freedom and allowing you to live the life you judge best uh, within that framework. And if it's not, then you know, be an advocate and help move it in the right direction, which is, I think, an important thing that uh, you're encouraging people to do. So in that sense, uh, it's, it's wrong to think, well, it's my country. I have to be loyal to it. No, if it's doing bad things, you should speak out. You should criticize them. You should protest them. You should move the, your country. You have a vested interest in it being better than it is if you think it's bad. So in that sense, it has to earn your loyalty. There's no such thing as unconditional patriotism, which I think that a lot of people just get confused. On the issue of nationalism, and this is obviously has come up a lot with Ukraine because it's seen as you know, the, the finest hour of nationalism. And, and, and a lot of Americans now are being pulled towards nationalism domestic. Like there's a whole wing of the conservative movement that's saying we need to be nationalists and so on. I, I don't like the term nationalism because, as you mentioned, it is ambiguous. I, I would define it this way. Nationalism in the most benign form, the kind that appeals to Americans, just is earned loyalty to the country because it's good. But let's not, let's not call that nationalism. Let's just call that something else because nationalism as an, a set of ideas, as something that people advocate, is very different. And if you look at it, what are some examples of nationalism in history? The Nazis were national socialists. They were nationalists. Uh, if you look at the Balkans, that is nationalism. All the wars that have unfolded, that is it. Nationalism is a, one way to think of it is it's one of the original identity politics categories. <laughs> Before there was race-based identity, there was national-based identity. And philosophically and intellectually, I'm not disclosing some new thing that everyone will be surprised at. This is just a matter of record. You go into the history of the idea, nationalism is a collectivist view. It means that the individual owes unconditional allegiance to the group he happens to be born into politically. Is it a good group? Doesn't matter. Is it a bad group? Doesn't matter. He just owes loyalty to the collective that is his nation. And that nation has a claim over him. So if they decide, you know what, we need to send you into war. Well, I don't think this is the right war. Who are you to decide? You're going to war. We're going to conscript you. I don't want to do this. This is for, you can't. This is a violation of my rights. Screw you. The nation decides, and your life is at our disposal. And that's essentially what nationalism is. And so nationalism is a bad ideology. It leads to conflict because essentially it tells people you can't resolve disputes because all there are are groups. You can't really get past uh, their views and our views. We can't find common ground. And when you have that position, you can't. You can't find common ground through rational communication. 
what's left is there's the fist. So nationalism, in my view, is a bad idea that should be marginalized, not embraced. If you want, if what you want, if what you find appealing is, I love this country. <laughs> I want to, I want to see it thrive. I want to make it better. Let's not cheapen that virtuous perspective, loyalty, by calling it something really bad, which is nationalism. Uh, nationalism should just be what it is, which is a, an ideology that subordinates the individual, has a bloody history, and its resurgence is a sign of decay culturally. So it has taken us to Ukraine and Russia just to, to sharpen the point. My best guess is what the Ukrainians are doing is we don't want to live under Russia's boot. And you might say that's nationalism, but I think it's more like they think their life is better without Russia. They want to be part of Europe. They want to be part of the West. And all of those things are, are, those are great. You should encourage that. What Putin is actually doing is the manifestation of nationalism as an ideology. He claims that there, there's just this one nation that's been divided and he's reuniting it. There's no society called Ukraine that's separate from the Russian nation. And how is that different from the Germans saying we need Lebensraum because our nation is growing too big for its borders and that you know, we're essentially fraternal with Austria, we're essentially fraternal with the people. Yeah, it's the same thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're in, the, in you know, facing down a new Hitler. That's not the point. I mean, he's a very bad leader, but he's not quite the same. He hasn't, he hasn't demonstrated quite the same evil. Uh, so that's important. But it's it, the idea that there is some kind of super organism of which any individual is just a speck, a, a cell. That's what nationalism is. And it's not surprising that it, 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 you know, it leaves its own borders and tries to sub subjugate other people. That's just the pattern throughout history. Uh, so in my view, let's not call what the Ukrainians are doing nationalism. That's, let's reserve that for what Putin is doing and really understand the, the categories differently. There's no reason to be loyal to Putin's regime. Putin's regime should fall. His own people should bring him down. It's illegitimate, as we said earlier. It has no basis in morality, whereas Ukrainians do. I mean, it's certainly defensible to say we're moving towards eliminating corruption in our society. We want to be part of Europe. We want to avoid living under authoritarianism. In my view, all of that deserves our encouragement and support. Yeah, and I can say that uh, personally. I mean, I, I this is anecdotally, but I, I did have a chance to speak in uh, Kiev a few years ago. And obviously the people, maybe not obviously, but the people who invited me to speak were more on the side of saying, yeah, we want to be more westernized. We want to have more of a, a classical liberal viewpoint about uh, markets. And, and they, were, they were wanting to hear more of that kind of thing. But I think that was, I think that was and is a trend in, in Ukraine. And, and that's to be celebrated and, and to be assisted and and to be morally judged good. Um, and, and it seems like the recent, recent every day that comes out with news uh, confirms that maybe Putin is on, on, on that spectrum of, uh, maybe he's not Hitler yet, but it's, it's looking pretty mm -hmm. ugly. What, what should happen now? I mean, it looks like the Ukrainians are putting up a great fight, but it's been just a miserable, you know, destructive whole thing for their uh, nation and society. What what is the proper foreign policy right now from the U.S.? Are we doing enough? Are the sanctions enough? Are we doing enough to support the good guys in this case? I think there's room for more. I, I, you know, people talk about, are the sanctions effective? Are they targeting the right things? As of recently, I, do we still have an ambassador from Russia in our country? How's that, how's that a thing? 
I mean, I don't understand. You, you can't be serious about punishing Putin and ostracizing his regime if you're still having an ambassador here. And the same goes for every country on, on the planet that has diplomatic uh, representation with Putin. Shut the door. I mean, that's step one. And then there's all these organizations. So you mentioned in passing the UN. I, we could talk for hours about the evil of the UN. I think it, it's a corrupt organization. They were debating last week or earlier this week, well, should we, should we suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council? Why is it even in the Human Rights Council? Why is it even in the UN if the UN has any kind of basis? My view is that that's another opportunity to say to Russia, no, we're not letting you, we're not letting you be part of this, the G20. Uh, World Trade Organization, all these associations where there's a place for Russia, shut the door at the at least. And then there's probably more. I haven't looked into this in the last few weeks, but I know we've done a lot with limiting the ability of Russia to engage in international trade through constraining their ability to transfer money. There's this whole system uh, of uh, this consortium that lets you transfer money called SWIFT. I don't think we've even exhausted the possibilities there. Uh, so to me, there's so much more you can do. And then I think there's more we can do to support the Ukrainians, which is uh, let, get, let them have more weapons, let them have more means to do what they need to do. Can we give them more intelligence? And I was really impressed, just one concrete thing. This is not a government action, but it's still worth a note. Whatever you think of Elon Musk, and I think there's a lot to say about him, but I was impressed that his company, which has a satellite internet service called um, what it's called um, Starlink. Starlink. That's right. That is a brilliant thing. I'm really impressed that he did that. It would be good if they're, I'm not saying it's up to private individuals or companies to do it, but that's the kind of thing where, yeah, if Russia were able to shut down their internet, Ukraine would not be able to fight back. So it's a good thing to support that kind Absolutely. of ability and then know-how. And, and there's just so much that America has by way of know-how. Um, you know, we've, I, I don't want to get into this necessarily, but it's good to bracket for people to think about. Um, this is really, I mean, my colleague, Yaron Brook, has made this point a lot, and I agree with it, which is this is really a war that Europeans should be fighting. And not just here's the weapons. The Europeans should be massing on the Russian border and threatening Russia. Uh, Russia's economy is very small, from what I understand. It, I don't think it would take a lot more to really collapse it. And if you collapse the economy, then maybe Putin's regime goes away. And the Europeans are in a position to do this. Stop buying fuel from Russia, uh, which some countries are starting to do. So I think there's a lot that the U.S. can do, it's, but it's primarily the Europeans who should be doing it. And the thing that I wanted to bracket is NATO, which is there's a, it's a real mess. And I think there's real questions about what NATO's purpose is, why we're even in NATO, we the U.S. are in NATO. But leaving that aside, NATO is a powerful thing. Why don't most of the na nations in NATO really use their muscle and, and bring Putin's regime to the point where it's, it's starved for money, starved for material, unable to trade with anybody? You can succeed much more than people realize. So I, I, think, I don't think the answer is, oh, we need boots on the ground. We need an international force. I don't think we're even facing anything like that. It, it, yeah. There's so much more you can do with moral suasion. This was, I mean, Ayn Rand made this point about the Soviet Union, which was, you know, so many times more powerful than Putin is today in the sense of its standing in the world stage. Her view was if we had anything like a rational approach to foreign policy and we, we 
enforced a moral embargo, basically. Like, don't deal with them. Don't give them any credibility. Don't lend them any undeserved uh, standing as civilized nation. It would collapse because we weren't doing that. I mean, we were giving them aid and all kinds of things like that. But We were propping them up. We were doing the opposite, right? Exactly. So if you if you take away the moral support that we lend them through various things and then crush them economically, I, I think you could do a lot more. Before I let you go, that I do, I do want to kind of pivot a little bit and get any comments you have to end on with regard to the proper foreign policy regarding China right now, because that's that's another thing that's on Americans' minds. And certainly there's been some bumbling, bungling of that whole relationship. Make some comments uh, to, to finish up here about what a proper foreign policy today looks like with regard to how we deal with China. Sure. I, I, let me just say briefly that this is an area I'm starting to look into. It's not my, my strength yet. On China, one thing that I think is a misconception and one thing that is underappreciated. So the misconception right now is there's a lot of worry about China becoming more economically powerful and therefore becoming a, quote, competitor or a rival. And there's some sort of inevitability of conflict as a result of that. And that puts all the emphasis on material factors as driving conflict. And I think that's a mistake. I, don't, I think that the reality is that if other countries grow rich and they go more prosperous, that's good for us. <laughs> we should welcome that. And the misconception, so that's the misconception. And I think the thing that's underappreciated is if there is a sort of military or, or, or some sort of conflict on the horizon with, Russia, with China, it's not because it's grown rich fundamentally. It's, it's because of the ideas that its leadership hold that would lead them to think of us as someone they need to fight. And that's a complex thing that people aren't really pulling apart. And to me, although China is ruled nominally by a communist party, I don't think they're really communists anymore. They're more authoritarian. Would you say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But yeah. would you say, you know, and this is something I, I um, work with in my own mind is try, trying to clarify. But just as it's, it is a black and white case, Putin's bad, Russia's bad. They, they're not a legitimate, it's not a legitimate dream. Would you say the same thing about the Chinese? Is that regime legitimate in the same sense that uh, that we treat other countries or they like Russia? They're not quite like Russia, but they're not legitimate either. So Russia is, is militant, whereas I think China has aspects of it and there's reasons to think it's going to become more. But it's illegitimate on the same grounds that you can't. You don't have free speech in China. You can't, you don't choose the leadership. It's a fundamentally authoritarian regime. So while China has become more economically vibrant, and you could you could argue economically free compared to where it was. And that's certainly Absolutely. Uh, at least for a while they were, right? Yeah. What hasn't changed, and maybe in some ways it's it's as bad or worse, is just the political like. COVID. <laughs> when they did COVID zero, they literally boarded people up in their homes. And we, you know, we were rightly outraged here about the lockdowns. But they didn't have lockdowns. They had imprisoning people in whole cities. So th that is a, the mark of a society that does not, that f I mean, it, it laughs in the face of freedom. Like it, it does not take freedom at all seriously. So, so that to me is a really significant worry with China becoming, the more its authoritarianism becomes its defining quality intellectually, the more there's reason to worry about it. Now, so that's sort of my, that's an answer to the view that 
we're heading for inevitable uh, crisis with China. I don't think it's inevitable. I think there are reasons to worry about it, and they're, they're fundamentally ideological. One more thing to say in terms of foreign policy and, and more concrete things. Uh, there, I think one of the biggest issues that gets some attention, but not enough, is intellectual property with China. So a lot of companies, I know people who've done business in China, some of them are still there, some of them are leaving because, because just doing business in China is difficult. Uh, and if you have IP at all, like if it's technology or any kind of IP, you are facing a government that is enabling its own sort of favored businesses to rip you off. They don't and, even, they don't not, they not only don't protect it, they're encouraging yeah. people to rip you off. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's an interesting article by a friend of mine, Adam Mossoff, who's a law professor, who's an expert in IP. He recently wrote about how this is true even beyond China's borders. So they're going, they're chasing American companies into sort of American and European courts and trying to coerce them out of their IP. So to me, that is a really big problem, particularly for people who think that you can get ahead in China by doing trade. So I think it's a lot of complicated questions about what does it even look like to do business in China? Um, I, I'm really interested in, in exploring this further, but to me, you can't have a rational policy towards China today without making that a number one topic. Like, I mean, Taiwan's important, uh, the individual rights in China, those are all at the same level for me uh, because they're all connected to this idea of freedom and individual rights. So. IP is a right derived from our uh, right to life and property. It's another kind of property. And China violates that for its own people and violates that for people who come to business there. It, to me, it's, they're shooting themselves in the foot because IP is, the engine, is one of the engines of growth. So if they want to be better off in 10 years' time, they need better protections for IP, not, not uh, you know, short-term ripping it off. So you know, my handle on the existing policy towards China is not that firm, but my impression is it's not anywhere close to what it needs to be. Well, and that comes full circle. I mean, that, that's and, and I apologize for spending a little too much time on a couple of other things, but I, I, there's always rabbit holes I want to go down with you whenever I talk to you because it, it boils down to saying, OK, there is this this idea of having some principles that can work in every circumstance, but then it is work. It is actually effort and, and you have to think as to how do they apply in different circumstances. You know, you, you're making that, that principled comparison between Russia and China, but then the nuances and the differences, and that's, that is the work that needs to be done. And we hopefully have more and better uh, foreign policy experts in our, in our government who actually are doing that work, or at least reading your stuff. <laughs> and, and if not, I, I hope our listeners uh, will be reading your stuff. They'll, they'll be become much better advocates for freedom, capitalism, and individual rights if they uh, pay attention to your stuff. And I really appreciate you being here, um, you, Mike. I, I hope we'll we'll get a chance to to schedule some time to go down that rabbit hole of immigration and maybe some more on China as as the uh, time unfolds. But um, thank you so much for your for your time today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. We've been uh, talking to Ilan Giorno, a foreign policy expert with the Ayn Rand Institute, and I would advocate that you listen to him and read his stuff and, and become a better, more effective champion of laissez-faire capitalism, the only moral system that uh, has been invented by man. Thank you, Ilan. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks.